0: Good morning, Three Circle. Great to be with you guys today. We're going to continue the Nehemiah series on this Big Gift Sunday. I love what I'm seeing from the kids. Man, I love getting kids involved. Don't you love to see children learning how to walk with Jesus and be generous? And uh, that is awesome. So uh, we're excited about all that God's going to do through this initiative. Every single campus will be touched in some way, and and when we all do that together, uh, the load is light and the impact is huge, and that's what I love. My family's going to be a part of this, and we're so grateful for you and your generosity as a church. So we're going to continue in the book of Nehemiah now and and dive into, we're going to look at chapter five today, and just to help everyone understand, just a real quick catch up, remember who he is. Uh, The book of Nehemiah in your Bible is best understood in three ways, it's an autobiography, A memoir and also a prayer journal that that God preserved for his scripture and for his word. Nehemiah is an incredible man. Uh, He was born in exile and the reason God's people were in exile is that God was disciplining his children. And he was uh, was teaching them a lesson, so to speak, and trying to correct them. And he did that by allowing the Babylonians to defeat them in a battle and take them into exile. And when they won the battle, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem, including the temple and including the walls. And the walls in the ancient world meant you were a real city. It protected you. It was both psychological and physical. And those walls were torn down. And for a century, they would stay that way. And so Nehemiah had never even seen Jerusalem. He was born in exile. And then the Persians, who were even bigger and badder than the Babylonians, fought them and won a battle. And so the Persians took over. But the Persians... Would allow things to breathe a little more than the Babylonians did. Frankly, it's because they were much smarter than the Babylonians and more advanced. And so they allowed governorships to take over little areas and and give some freedom as long as the taxes kept coming in. Sounds a lot like the Roman Empire that would come later, okay? And, and by the way, the Romans learned a ton from the Persians, including how to crucify people. That was invented by the Persians. So just letting you know, there's all kinds of cool connections here historically, if you're a nerd like me on that stuff, okay? And so Nehemiah's born in that exile and he works his way up through the Persian government and he becomes gets him a good government job y'all. He becomes the cupbearer to the king and he happens to be a godly Jewish man so God lays on his heart that he needs to go to Jerusalem and fix the situation and rebuild the walls. But to do that he needs permission from the king and he gets it. He asks King Artaxerxes if he can go and rebuild the wall. And the king says, yes, you can, and I'll give you everything you need to do it, which is God's providence. When you do what God wants you to do, he provides. And so Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem, and he gives a big speech to the people. He unifies them, and they all go to work on the wall. We watched all that happen. They're all working. They're working hard, and then they get attacked. Last week, we saw from the outside, there's this guy, Tobiah, and this guy, Sanballat, and their whole bunch, and they don't want those walls rebuilt. And they attack them, start to make fun of them, and they even make up a story that this This army of the Sumerians is gonna come and attack them. So instead of stopping the rebuild, Nehemiah continues the work while preparing his people for possible attack. And remember last week, the people began to work with one hand holding a sword in the other. How about that? I like that. And they kept going. So last week we learned, what do you do when you get attacked from the outside? We called it yak. Remember that? Yards after contact. What do you do when you get punched in the mouth? You gotta keep going. And they did that. But I want to show you today in chapter five that the most dangerous attacks do not come from the outside. They come from the inside. And in chapter five, we're going to see that Nehemiah now is going to deal with stuff from the inside. And this may be one of the most practical chapters of the book. This is going to teach you so much about how to deal with marriage, how to deal with conflict in your home, in our churches. Because it is real easy to sit back and talk about the culture around us and everything that's going on around us. But let me tell you, what is harder and more important is for us to make sure our own homes are where they need to be. And our own churches, instead of barking about what's going on out there, maybe we need to focus on what's going on in here. And that is exactly what we're going to see Nehemiah deal with today. So last week, they get attacked verbally. Nehemiah keeps them working. They're now prepared in case there's an attack. And now they're working. The wall is half built, so they're halfway through. And this happens, Nehemiah 5, 1 through 5. Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their, against who? Not outsiders, against their own brothers. This is an inside thing. They're against their Jewish brothers. And here's what's going on. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters we are many. Let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We're mortgaging our fields, vineyards, houses to get grain because of the famine. Oh, so now we find out a famine hit the region while they're trying to rebuild the wall, which means the rain stopped, so the crops stopped growing. So the price of food went up and the availability of that food went through the roof and the availability went down. So that's what's going on. And they're having to borrow money just to stay alive, just to keep food, okay? Not only that, verse 4, there were those who said, we've had to borrow money for the king's tax, on our fields and vineyards. Who's the king? Artaxerxes. Remember the deal. You can do a lot in the Persian empire as long as you what? Pay your taxes. Don't pay your taxes. He would have been pulling Nehemiah off the wall, walls not being rebuilt, putting people in prison, execute them because they're a brutal empire. So you better pay your taxes. Verse five. Listen to their their argument. They said, now, our flesh is the same flesh as our brothers. In other words, we're all supposed to be together here. Our children's the same as their children. Yet, we're forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it because other men now have our fields and our vineyards. All right, I'm gonna tell you what's going on here. Write it down. The project to rebuild Jerusalem was threatened from the outside. Now it's being threatened from the inside. What is going on? Well, Remember in chapter 2 and 3, we saw that when Nehemiah started the rebuild, who were some of the first ones to grab a shovel and a spade and get to work? The, the powerful people. Remember that? Like the richest, most powerful people were the first ones to grab a shovel. They were excited. So there was unity. So the farmers and the car- remember that whole list of all these different people? It was everyone. didn't matter who you were, you were working on the wall. But over time, what happened is some of the more wealthy people and more fortunate and more privileged. They're just going, hey, this bunch of people pulled back from the work and they saw a situation, a famine hit and their little entrepreneurial minds started going, I could make some money here. This is an opportunity for me to get ahead, to make some money. And that's what they did. They began to watch their more... Uh, Vulnerable brothers and sisters, and when they would get hungry and in trouble, they would come in and go, hey, we got you, because they already had money. And they said, hey, here's what we'll do. We'll give you the food you need. Just sign over to me your land, which back then was all they had, right? And then they went more in value. When They knew over time it got worse. They'd come to them and say, hey, we got your back. All you got to do is give us your vineyards. Vineyards back then were a big deal, olive and grape." And so these poorer people are handing over everything they have to their own brothers who are taking advantage of them. And they're giving them loans and charging them interest. By the way, all of this is against Mosaic law. The Mosaic law forbid them to do these things. And yet, they're doing it. And not only that, it got so bad that they got into slave trade. And their poorer brothers and sisters, who they were all working on the wall together just just not long ago, now they're literally saying, hey, I'll I'll make your son and your daughter an indentured servant. Let's do it that way. And so they've done all this just trying to stay alive. And finally, the poorer people, the people who are less fortunate, finally said, we've had enough. They go to Nehemiah and they're like, Nehemiah, these are supposed to be our brothers. We're supposed to be doing this together. Okay, this is a big deal. And I want you to notice when this happens. It does not happen at the beginning. Everyone was excited. And you're gonna see next week that when it all ends and the wall's built, they're gonna have a big celebration. Everyone's excited then. It's in the middle. It's in the middle. You can write this down. The middle of a race is the most vulnerable spot for a runner. It's the most vulnerable spot. It's the most vulnerable spot for a church, most vulnerable spot for a marriage. Weddings, they're easy. They're fun. I tell people all the time when I do marriage counseling, I'm like, look, I'm trying to help you have a marriage, not a great wedding day. You and your mama can go do that. I'm going to try to help you have a good marriage. And I just tell the dude, I'm like, just zip it. For right now, Zip it, just you He'll have little things say, pst, pst. remember what I told you? It's her day. Have a good time, her day. Hey, but we're going to try to have a good marriage here, right? Because it's the middle that's the hardest. Let me tell you what I mean. Look at this guy getting ready to run. This is what it looks like at the beginning of a race. That's Nehemiah and the Jewish people that day when he gave the speech. They're like, Give no. everyone's excited because they had not started working yet. They're not dirty yet. It's not hard yet. They're not being criticized yet. This guy hasn't sweat yet. He's not breathing hard yet. His heart's not beating yet. He's excited to start the race. The beginning's not the hardest. And by the way, this isn't the hardest part either. Look how happy he is. He's tired and sweaty, but he's like, yeah, because the finish line's not the hardest part. Because you know, scientifically, they say when runners see the finish line, they get a new burst of endorphins and energy to finish. They speed up all of a sudden, right? Right. It comes out of nowhere. It's psychological and physical, okay? That's hard, but it's not the hardest part. Let me tell you the hardest part, in the middle of the race, right here. There's not a happy person there. Look at them. They're not excited. The dude at the beginning, he's like, I'm winning, I don't care. The dude next to him is like, I might die. I'm gonna die any step now. No one's happy. Why? Let me tell you why. Because in the middle of a race, those guys can't see where they started and they also can't see where it ends and they're vulnerable. It's where their mind starts working on their body. It's where they start thinking, I can't do this. All the stuff, they start looking around them, and we do it in churches, and we do it in marriages. Don't talk to me about how the wedding day was. Talk to me on year 12, when the mortgage is too much, and the kids are driving you crazy, and the mother-in-law's hard to deal with, which probably never happens, but you know what I mean. And so, you know? Tell me how it's going then, right? It's the middle of the race. It's the middle of it. Our incredible Robertsdale campus, they're feeling that right now. No one's fussing about it, but I just know how it is. Day one, it was fun waking up at 4.30 to set up the church. Three months in, it's probably like, okay, here we go. You know? It's hard. And so what I want to warn you and ask you today as a church, what are you in the middle of that you need to be careful that you don't allow yourself to become vulnerable because that what, that's what happened to them. And you know what happened? They began to become divided. Their unity began to break down. Jesus warned of this. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 25, every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste and no city and no house divided against itself will stand. What Jesus is saying is unity is a big deal. Unity is a big deal. And I would say this to you today, Nehemiah is modeling it. The New Testament is about to, Pour more concrete on it for us. Unity is crucial to not only achieve, but also to maintain. Nehemiah achieved unity day one when he got there. Remember the speech? For your brothers, for your sisters. He was like Braveheart, freedom, you know? And everybody said, yes, let's build the wall. They were unified. Kind of feels, how many of you are old enough to remember the month or two after 9-11? Y'all remember that? Remember how unified the country was for about, that long? You remember we had W as president. Remember W had talked like this. His eyes would do like this. He'd make up words like strategery. <laughs> That's one of his why I love W. Man, remember him on that megaphone when he was down at the Trade Center and the, rub, the rubble all around him. He had that megaphone. It was in the whole world just, we were unified. I mean, he's got to be the only president that could actually throw a strike. Remember that? He had that first ball game, bat, that famous moment. He throws it, boom, it's a strike. And Democrats and Republicans were getting along for like two days. <laughs> then it all became political again, became a mess. Unity, though, boy, like even as I speak of it, don't you remember? It was like, wow, that felt good. How many of you know it's no fun being married not being unified? Isn't it the worst when you're not speaking to each other and you're kind of stuck in a house with each other? It's like, you know, you're clanging plates and stuff and making noise with cabinets, you know. It's like Morse code with the cabinet, you know, hitting stuff. Like, okay, something's wrong. I'm not saying we do that, but I think a lot of you probably do. (laughs) Unity is a beautiful thing. But it can't just be achieved. It must be maintained in churches, in organizations, in homes, in marriages. It must be maintained. Look, I go and get my uh, oil changed to my car, okay? That's good. We, I maintain good balance in that engine or I achieved it, but I've got to maintain it because in 3,000 miles, if I don't get it changed again, I'm going to have problems, Too many of us think that one-time unity is good to go. No, no, it is maintenance. And Nehemiah knows he's got to deal with this. The Apostle Paul said to us as people of God in Philippians, he said, look, complete my joy by being, and and watch this, two things are going to happen. He's going to define biblical unity in one line, and then he's going to tell you both what to do and not to do to maintain it in the second line. First line. Here's what biblical unity is. Biblical unity is being of the same mind, having the same love, and being of full accord and of one mind. That's biblical unity. Here's what you must not do if you want to stay unified. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Here's what you must do to maintain it. But instead, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now watch this. Paul's saying the number one thing to protect unity is to not be arrogant and selfish and make it all about you. It's number one. The number one way to stay unified with people is to not be selfish and arrogant, humble yourself and treat others with incredible respect, even more respect than you would yourself. That is the way we all stay unified. And Paul is saying that's one of the most, he says that's complete joy. Isn't it true when you and your wife or you and your husband are on the same page, isn't it awesome? You're just like, man, this is great. When the fam- you feel those moments of unity as a family, it's really good. As a church, we're unified, it's really good. And so the Bible is telling you, yes, it's good. You, want, you know what else? When, when people of God are in unity, it brings great glory to God. Disunity dishonors God. Unity glorifies God. You want to know why it glorifies Him almost more than anything else? Because it's hard. That's why. Because it's hard to stay unified. Now, let me tell you what the Bible's not telling you. It's not telling you uh, to be uniformed. There is a difference in unity and uniformity. The Bible nowhere says for you to be uniformed, it says to be unified. Okay? What's the difference? Well, Unity, Paul made it clear, is when we come together under the banner of Jesus, Nehemiah and his people coming together under the banner of, we're going to build this wall to the glory of God and the good of the people. But they were all very different. Do you remember the chapter that literally told you how different they all were? There were carpenters and brick masons and rich people and poor people and this person and that person. How boring would our church be if we weren't all different? We're very different. Y'all have different hairstyles. You like different schools. There's Auburn fans, Bama fans, LSU fans, who's the only happy ones right now, right? Uh, You like different foods. There's vegans here. There are vegans at Three Circle Church. Absolutely. And then there are people that eat meat. Uh, There are, uh, watch this. This is going to blow your mind. There are people who vote differently here. (gasps) Why did he say that? I can understand him saying it, but why this week would he say that? Yeah, there's people that vote different and still love Jesus. Yes, that is what unity looks like. Uniformity, look, my family, now I want you to hear this. Here's why unity is better than uniformity, because unity is way harder than uniformity. Uniformity is a cheap trick. That's what it is. It's a shortcut. It's like a home run hitter taking steroids. He went into camp 180, he comes out 250 hitting bombs. And you're like, that's not for real. We all know it's not real. So you don't credit that person with it. They took a shortcut. That's what uniformity is. Let me give you an example. When my kids were little, we take them to Disney World. And this, twice we did this. We took them when they were little and we gave them all the same, t- we had uniformity. We gave them all the same t-shirt. Big old yellow t-shirt that said Bell Family on it, Disney, whatever, so we could see them everywhere we went. And they were happy because they were six, four, and two. And then there was another time when it was like eight, six, and five. And they're like, yeah, give me that t-shirt. We all look alike, But let me tell you, I roll out some matching t-shirts now and my 17-year-old's going to be like, no. (laughs) No, sir. I love you, Dad. I can't go there. Can't do it. Why? Because, look, uniformity is easy. It was easy. Just put the same t-shirt on them. I can see where you are. Unity you have to wrestle with. See, back then, I could decide what we're going to listen to in the car. We get in the car, I play whatever I wanted to, and everybody just kind of bopped along. Now they all have opinions and stuff. My oldest son loves old cars. Man, he loves old cars. My middle son loves old music. My daughter loves Luke Bryan. <laughs> you know? So we get in the car now. If I try to play what I want to hear, we're all in the same car, they'll either say, we're not listening to that, or they'll just pop their headphones in and listen to their own music because we are not uniformed. But we, we fight for unity. Unity's harder. Some of y'all rolled up in here today and you love southern gospel music. You'd give anything if we would do some southern gospel music on this stage. Some of you are like, man, the music's loud in there. Some of the others are like, it's not loud enough. Some of y'all love it loud. Some of you like light, some of you don't. Some of you like this, some of you like that. But we stay unified under the banner of Jesus. And unity brings more glory to God because it's harder to maintain and it brings good things. Let me tell you some things that kill unity. Divi- according to Paul, divisiveness, we should be distinct without being divisive. Divisiveness, selfishness, and a critical spirit will kill the unity in any situation, in a marriage, and all of it. Unity is a beautiful thing that brings great glory to God and great joy to us because it's so hard. It makes it so good. So what did Nehemiah do? He realizes there's a lack of unity. Will Nehemiah ignore it and go, it'll work out. We don't need to rock the boat. Let's not talk about this. We got a job to do. No, Nehemiah knows that things like this, watch this, they don't fix themselves. They don't just get better. You gotta do something about it. So what, what does he do? Number one, I love this. Nehemiah writes in his little diary. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Thank goodness he's a human. First time I've seen Nehemiah get upset because I was starting to think this guy's not human. And now, well, thank goodness he is. You ever been around someone that you thought, they're just perfect. And then you see them lose, your te- lose their temper and you're like, oh, okay, okay. That's what everybody thinks when I coach ball, when I coach my kids in ball. They're they, Pastor Chris, there you go, oh, Pastor Chris, you know. <laughs> they start pray- praying for Pastor Chris now, you know. <laughs> so I love that Nehemiah was human. He says, I was angry. Now, what does he do? Does he, in his anger, deal with the situation? No, Nehemiah, again, is such a good dude. Verse seven, instead of just running out and getting mad, he says, I took counsel with myself. I love that phrase. What do you think that means? I think it means he slowed down. I think it means that He probably prayed since we've seen him do that so often. I think he settled himself down to go, now what's really going on here? Because I think that his first reaction would have been to say to everyone coming and complaining to him, stop your complaining, we got a job to do. But because he slowed down, he realized they've got a point. They've got a point. This is a bigger deal. We got a problem here. We've got the more privileged people treating the less privileged people like they're less important and they're taking advantage of a situation. Oh, and they're breaking Mosaic law. Now we've got a real big problem. So you know how Nehemiah is. He's not gonna think about it too long. He's not gonna put off what needs to happen. He's not gonna avoid a hard conversation because it might hurt someone's feelings. Oh no, you don't know Nehemiah if you think that's what he's gonna do. He says, I got angry, I settled down, took counsel myself, and then I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. He went right at it. And they were the richest, most powerful people. They could have lied about him. They could have called King Artaxerxes on his cell phone and said, hey, you got to get this guy out of here. Well, they didn't have cell phones back then. I was just joking. Um, (laughs) Tough crowd. There we go. Just a smattering of appreciation for the humor. Um, He brought charges. Now, he took it seriously. He took the situation seriously. And instead of just going to everybody and going, hey, everybody, we need to do better. No, he said, no, it's a specific problem. So he went to them privately. He went to the rich guys and the, the guys that had all the power. He said, hey, you're doing this wrong. And you're going you're gonna to need to change it. I said to them, you're exacting interest each from his brother. That's against Mosaic law. That obviously didn't work because then he had to take it to the whole crowd. So he brought the crowd together. He's, he held a great assembly against them. And he said to them, We, as far as we are able, we've bought back all our Jewish brothers who've been sold into the nations. But you are selling your brothers that they may be sold back to us? They were silent. They could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. In other words, Nehemiah did have money. Remember, he was a big shot in Persia, but he was not charging interest. He's just, hey, pay me back when you can. We're brothers here. So he's like, why aren't you guys doing the same thing? And then he doesn't just point out the problem. He says, and here's how we got to fix it. He says, let us abandon this thing, exacting of interest. And you need to return to them this day their fields, their vineyards, their orchards, their houses, their money, their grain, their wine, their oil that you have been taken from them. Hmm. Now that's leadership. In other words, don't mess around with Nehemiah. And what did they do? Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. So I called the pre. I love Nehemiah, Nehemiah's like, good. Well, I'm going to make sure you do that. He brings the preachers in. He's like, now swear to them that you're going to do what you just said to do. I love it. Nehemiah's like, all right, good. Let's make sure you do it. Now, what do we see? Disunity, when it happens, and it happens, it requires attention and action. If it's in your marriage, if it's in your home, if it's with your kids, if it's with your extended family, if it's in our church, when disunity happens, and it will happen, it's not the end of the world, but you got to do something about it. You can't just let it fix itself. Cancer, when it's caught early, is easier to treat. And if you let it hang out for a while. Let me tell you what I mean. I'll give you a visual that I hope will help use a lot of my life and a lot of different applications. I hope it helps you. All right, so on the screen, we're gonna have four boats. Two of the boats, let's say this boat represents, our, these boats represent our church or your marriage or your family or whatever. Two of the boats are going the same direction. You see that? They're both in what we would call unity, they're going the same direction. There's one boat on the far right that's going the, like the wrong direction. It's super clear. And then there's one, the one's just a little bit off. The third one's just, just a tad off, just a little bit off. Which boat is the most dangerous boat? And most people would naturally say the boat that's going the wrong direction. I will tell you today that that is not the most dangerous boat because what happens over time with the little boat that's a little off is this. There it is. That's what happens. And see, here's what I know from my own life and yours. In your organizations, what this may be the most practical thing you get from Nehemiah today, and it's this. You will go handle that boat one way or the other that's so far off you gotta do something about it. When your marriage gets that far off, it's like, oh man, we're just plugging the holes. We gotta do something. But most all of us, when it's just a little bit off, we let it go. And we let it go and let it go and let it go until it gets so bad that we figure out we gotta do something about it. And we've done so much damage and we've let it go so far that then it's, it's like triage to get it fixed. But here's the beauty of it. When we make quick corrections like Nehemiah did, instead of ignoring it, he fixed it and noticed that not one of those rich folks, powerful people left. None of them abandoned. They all said, You're right, we're wrong, our bad, we'll fix it. And next week you're going to see them all having a party, woo, together. Why? Because someone fixed the boat when it was a little bit off instead of letting it go forever. In our marriages, a great marriage counselor said to me one time, he said, you can trace every divorce back to an eye roll. He said, trace it back far enough. You'll find the first time one of them were dismissive to the other. It's the first time they went, there it is. And that little thing got that boat a little bit off and it just started doing this number. And they went years without fixing, years and years. And it does not fix itself. So what we see from Nehemiah today is, Have the hard conversation fast because it can be fixed. In your marriage, with your kids, in your family. Don't let stuff just go and go and build and fester. No, have the hard conversations quick because then you can correct it. And that's good stuff to help you in your own life. See, biblical confrontation should be normal and positive. Not some traumatic event. But because it's so rare that we do it right, we we think it's some horrible thing when we even have a hard conversation with one another. I've got some brothers in my life we can talk to each other. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful when people say to me, "Hey man, watch this. Hey, I saw this." I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful to have a wife that can call me out. And I'm grateful for it because sometimes she just frankly sees things I don't see. And so Jesus told us in Matthew 18, 20, when we do this, he's with us. Look what he says. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, he never taught. like This is one of the only times he says this. And most of us have wrongly believed, and it's okay. We just got it wrong. It's okay to be wrong sometimes. We got it wrong. We think that he's talking about church, worship. I've heard it used my whole life. Where two, There's even songs. I grew up singing this song. Where two or three are gathered in his name, there he'll be. And we think it's church. That's not what he was talking about. Do you know he was talking about conflict? You might remember this. Jesus said, when you got a problem with a brother or a sister, go to them one-on-one. Remember this? He said, if that doesn't work, take someone with you. If that doesn't work, you go bigger with the, with the people that know. That's what Nehemiah did. And then he said, and when you do this, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. What he was saying was, when we do conflict to hold unity correctly, He will help us, why? Because he knows it's hard. That's why. Because he knows it's hard to do it. When me and my wife fight for our unity in our marriage, God says, I am with you because I know how hard that is. And I know that if you'll stay unified, you will shine a light brighter than anything else. And church, listen, we can waste a whole lot of time getting mad about the culture and railing on the politics and watching all of our shows and getting all fired up about how the whole world's coming against us. But I would say today to do us much more good and God way more glory if we will focus on this church, on inside our lives, on our homes, on our kids, on our families, on our marriages then we will bring great glory to God and watch this, if we've got a shot at all of putting a dent in this culture, we're going to have to get unity on the inside before we go out there and we do have a shot to shine a big light, but it's real hard to shine a light into a culture that's looking at us going well you guys don't even get along well your your divorce rates are as high as ours You guys aren't doing it. Well, don't look at us and tell us that you've got relationships down when y'all don't. And we all have to admit, got a point. Got a point there. So what if we began to go, you know what? Now, Nehemiah didn't ignore what was going on around him, but he also did not allow that to be the focus. You can see his real energy was on the inside going, guys, if we've got a chance to affect this whole region for God around us, We got to get it together in here. And I love that he did that. And we can do it too. Now, you might not realize it, but in closing today, Nehemiah all this time has not been the official leader. He has no official title. He's still just a dude from Persia who happens to be a great leader. But now they're going to make it official. What will happen when Nehemiah has the title? You ever known people who once they got a little power, Whew! I planted a church one time in a mall And we had a mall cop. And you would have thought I had Rambo guarding us in there. I mean, it was serious business. A little bit of power. What does Nehemiah do with power? Watch. He's writing in his journal. He says, moreover, from that time, so they all saw, this dude's a leader. I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah. From the 20th year to the 32nd year of is the king, so that's 12 years. And watch this. And while I did it, while I was the governor, neither I nor my brothers or my team, basically, none of us ate the food allowance of the governor. In other words, if you were a governor, you got better food than everyone else, and Nehemiah turned it down. He said, nope, we got to be unified. I can't be eating ribeye steaks. Everybody else eating ramen noodles. I can't be eating at Ruth's Chris. Everybody else eating at McDonald's. That was funnier than you guys thought. So he did, verse 15, the former governors who were before me. So he says, the guys before me, they laid heavy burdens on the people. They took from them 40 shekels of silver every day. Even their servants did that stuff, but I did not. And look what he says. And here's why. Because I fear the Lord. Because I'm going to let who I follow affect how I lead. And I would say this to end the day. Just take it and think about it. Because Jesus did this. How does this point to Jesus? Jesus was the most powerful person in every room he ever walked into and he washed feet. He served. What you do when you have power, influence, and authority is one of the greatest tests of your character. Don't ever forget that. Whether you're the mom in charge for the day, for the kids, you're the teacher in charge of the room, you're the coach of the little league team, or you're the CEO of the corporation, Who are you when you have the power? Nehemiah showed us who he was. And I hope today that if you've got little boats off a little bit, that you'll deal with them before they get like this, okay? To the glory of God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your goodness today in your word. Thank you for the relevancy of all that you've given us in your scriptures. Let us live it out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.